0: Namaste, motherfuckers.
1: Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Watching the Detectives. So a few crime facts before we kick off. In 1982, There was a World Cup match between Austria and West Germany that was so bad, television pundits urged viewers to change channels, and a Spanish newspaper featured the match in their crimes section. Because it's so difficult to get rid of, glitter has been used as evidence in solving crimes, among them at least one murder. I think anyone who's had young children knows just how well glitter and murder go together human DNA extracted from bedbugs has been used as evidence to prove a suspect has been at a crime scene. Bedbugs don't remain on the host but they do remain at the crime scene and the blood lasts up to two days. Hmm. So anyone who's ever taken the piss out of my attachment to hygiene, cleanliness and 1950s standards of housework around the home, all you need to know is I could literally be getting away with murder. So who's laughing now? And... Last but not least, after being removed by forensics, JFK's brain was mysteriously lost before it could be autopsied. Take that, conspiracy theorists.
0: But I'm currently uh, on the coast in Kent.
1: Oh, lovely. Do you have a second home there? Are you one of those people?
0: Tragically, yes.
1: That's my guest today, crime writer Mark Billingham. Talking of crime writing, in the 1930s crime novel, The Postman Always Rings Twice, no postman is actually ever mentioned. And the British writer, Alan Moore, once said, life isn't divided into genres. It's a horrifying, romantic, tragic, comical, science fiction, cowboy detective novel. You know, with a bit of pornography, if you're lucky.
0: Audio-only anyway, right?
1: It's audio only, yes. Yeah, so right. It's always nicer to see people, but um, I see you've made a big effort to look good for the occasion. <laughs> Mark made his name as an actor, TV writer, and stand-up comedian before his first crime novel, Sleepyhead, was published back in 2001. His crime series featuring London-based detective Tom Thorne has continued to huge acclaim ever since, with the most recent instalment and the 17th in the series, Cry Baby a prequel set in 1996. He's also the author of best-selling standalone novels. Mark makes regular radio and TV appearances and is a member of the Fun Loving Crime Writers, a musical combo of best-selling crime and thriller writers who, unlike your average dad band, have actually performed at Glastonbury. Mark and I talked about writing, fans, Zoom life, reviews, crowd-pleasing, Elvis Costello showing off personality types, writing, reading, poker, and John Irving. But I started by asking him about his prolific literary output during lockdown.
0: Sleepyhead's 21 years old. Um, there was a special edition of that that came out last year uh, to celebrate the anniversary. The last book that came out in paper was a book called Cry Baby, which was a prequel.
1: Yeah. Oh, that was the prequel. So that was the one back to 96. Yeah, that's
0: yeah. right. And um, and since then, I've written, yeah, two, two novels. And the first one is coming out next month, but the next one is already done and delivered. I, I, I guilty. It's a horrible thing to admit, but lockdown kind of agreed with me. It seems
1: like it did, because I was thinking, you know, I managed to write, I think I wrote about five jokes in 18 months, uh, which I was quite proud of myself for, Um, but you've gone ahead and actually written, written, but you're, so you're quite a, it's fair to say, quite a natural writer, right? Even when you were a stand-up, writing Um, seems to have come, did it come easy?
0: uh, Sometimes, but I mean, it's the problem for me during, if, if there has been one during lockdown, and my wife very with great psychological insight the other day when I sort of hit a wall, just went, you, you miss an audience, don't you? And I don't necessarily mean an audience on a stage, an audience in the pub, an audience anywhere. I kind of, you know, I was getting sick of my own company and you know, quite understandably. And even though it meant um, I didn't have to, because I wasn't touring, I wasn't promoting books, I wasn't traveling around doing events, all I could do was write, which meant I was very productive. But that's the bit of the job I enjoy the most, is is the is the shambling up onto a stage and showing off and talking about your books and like that's the bit I really love. So I've missed that enormously.
1: And have you felt some sort of connection with your audience? Because I imagine, I mean, people have read more as well as written more, right? So I imagine yeah. anyone who was into your shit—not that it's shit—will uh, have been really <laughs> immersed in it. So have you have you felt connected to the people who love your? Yeah, books? I mean,
0: plenty plenty of people get in touch on on social media and via email and stuff. And I've been doing a lot of these type of events with book groups and, and festivals, you know, festivals have been run like this. Um, But it's just not the same. I mean, it's, it's great in one way in that it's hugely inclusive because people who wouldn't dream, who either couldn't get to a festival for one reason or another or might be a bit intimidated at a festival surrounded by, you know, uh, crowds and whatever, they've been able to attend zoom festivals, um, which has been a very good thing, but it's, you don't, get that feedback you know it's just not quite the same
1: it's good for introverts isn't it my son's um, autistic not that that always goes with being an introvert but there are some people that the pandemic's quite suited right so some people have been able to get out and do loads of social things as you say because they're virtual who would not want to do what we do and be in a you know late night club or doing you know there'll be people for whom this has been a sort of social blessing I guess but maybe not people like you and I who make a living out of showing off
0: Right, but at the same time, it feels really—it uh, feels really shit to be to be moaning about the. Oh, I haven't been able to go to that festival or travel to the. You know, people have been dying for heaven's sake. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to moan about the fact that I didn't get to show off at the Hay Festival this year or whatever you it is. You, do you know can what I mean? tell
1: <laughs> you're not. A, you can tell you don't do much stand up anymore because as a stand up, you'd be like, "Fuck it, I'm going in. I'm doubling down on the crisis." <laughs> Who cares I, well, about a bit of, you know, a bit of COVID death?
0: It's, I, well, I don't know. It's funny that I was talking to, I mean, I still, I still play poker with a group of stand-ups every week. So I, I know kind of what's, what's happening as, as the scene starts to open up again and the circuit starts to get going. And I'm saying, are people doing much COVID stuff? Because I'd really thought that people would go to a comedy club and it's like, we do not want to hear about this stuff. Jesus, we're living it. But actually, comics do seem to be doing a lot of COVID stuff, which seems to be going down very well.
1: Well, it's all we've got, right? I mean, when you think about, you know, the kind of classic thing of, of, you know, successful comedians once all they're doing is touring, saying, you know, all the stuff I used to write about my daily life now is all in hotels and on stage. I've got nothing to yeah. write about. Well, if you times that by about 100 comedians in a pandemic, if we're not going to talk about COVID, we've got so sort all of else to talk about because that's yeah, all that's
0: happening. You walk on stage in the middle of the pandemic and go, so cats and dogs, right? Yeah. Uh, but,
1: <laughs> what is it with yeah. tubes?
0: It's not going to go that
1: well. <laughs> But I also, my, I think I'm emceeing a fair bit and I know you're, you've done tons of emceeing and no doubt will do much more but I do loads of emceeing it's my favorite thing and it is a kind of balance of coming on and sort of doing the kind of yeah, isn't it great to be here and making a few gags about what comedians have been doing in lockdown, but then also looking, trying to read the room and thinking, you've come away to not think about this, haven't you? And you do not want to hear yet another comedian going, oh, so you're nice to be off Zoom. Funny I've remembered to put my pants and my bra on. And they're like, yeah, right, okay, move
0: yeah, on. Yeah, it's, it's difficult though, isn't it? I mean, I remember doing, doing some material about the Iraq war when the Iraq war was on, um, and a woman knocking on the dressing room door in tears afterwards, complaining because... Her son was out there and she found it all really upsetting. And I'm kind of like, well, everybody else in the room who who doesn't have a son out there would actually be really disappointed if we weren't talking about the major thing that's happening in the world right now. It is kind of our job. Um, and, and I guess you're running a risk with the pandemic. You know, you're playing in front of a few hundred people and you're doing pandemic material. Chances are quite a lot of people in that audience know people who have died or have had relatives who have died. It's, it's a tricky tightrope to walk, isn't it?
1: But I guess if you go in, I mean, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because your, your books are quite dark, obviously, know, you've picked being a crime writer, and there's no, no getting away from the fact that some of the stuff, some of the plots are quite harrowing. Oh, yeah. And it's a different thing, I guess, when you're doing something, I don't know how thick your skin is or was as a stand-up or when you're on stage. Where are you at with that as a kind of comedian versus a writer?
0: Well, you can't self-censor. You can't self-censor. But there's no question that it's funny. I remember one of the earliest reviews I ever got, for stand-up was from a magazine long, long since defunct called City Limits, which... I
1: used was to the love
0: City Limits. City Limits great, you know, the other listings magazine yeah. I'm out. Um, and I was in a double act back then, and we were described... He was trying to criticise us, but he described us as, as, inverted commas, crowd-pleasers. And I remember thinking, hang on a second. Isn't <laughs> that kind of what you're trying to do? Um, and I suppose the same, the same is true when it comes to books. I mean, I write books to be read, I mean, every writer will say, oh, I'll write for myself. But at the end of the day, when I write, there's a reader over my shoulder. You know, it's me as a reader looking at looking at the words as they appear on the page, imagining how they're going to be read. And a book doesn't exist unless it's read. You know, it's a, it's a two-part process. You know, it's like a deal you make with the reader. And I'm writing to be read and I'm writing to entertain a readership. It's as much a performance as as stepping on stage at the comedy store or it's as much of a performance. It's just very different, but. My job is to entertain a reader, you know. Entertain meaning upset them, make them cry, make them all sorts of things within, within a make form. Them yeah, them. Make them react to what you're giving them. Yeah, make them engage, right?
1: And is that in terms of um, they say, don't they, that comedians often they are kind of writers or performers and most people tend to have one bit. They that drew them in and they find easier. I certainly am um, possibly the opposite of you in that. I absolutely love the performing bit, but I really do find the writing a struggle, which is why I do so much emceeing because I can I'm, sort of I'm write exactly as I go. Exactly.
0: I was exactly the same. Were because you? I'm Even though exactly you're such a good, good writer? Time. Um, I don't know, but I I I always found writing, I can find writing dark stuff way easier than writing jokes.
1: That's really um, interesting. I assumed you'd say that you could rattle out comedy material like there was no tomorrow when you I mean, were d- standing. Well, well, I kind
0: of do in my spare time. But if it was my job, do you know what I mean? If it was, a, I mean there are plenty of jokes in the books, and I do plenty of jokes. I mean I get my stand up jollies these days by doing. Book events. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't do book events where I sit and talk in deeper, meaningful tones about violence and noir and all that stuff. I'm there to tell cheap gags and sell a few books. Um, but no, by by the end of my stand up career, I was I was pretty much just emceeing because, you know, I wasn't. I, apart from anything else, I was too busy writing books to be writing jokes. Yeah. By then. So I was just coming out and spending my life going, where are you from? Let's talk about you for a bit. (laughs)
1: Funny stuff comes as I don't know if you found this when you emceeing, but I mean, I know the classic thing when writing something funny is to start off, you know, definitely not trying to be funny and see what comes, but it's amazing how many ideas, you know, like all comics. And I'm sure with, with the way you write, you know, we've always got ideas and notes on our phones and stuff. We thought we'd do something with, and then it got sort of lost in the annals of time. And then something will come up in the room and somewhere from the recesses of your brain, that little note you wrote two years ago, you're like, oh yeah I was going to do something about you know mm. gynecology or whatever it is and then it all just happens because you're thinking so quickly on stage right so when you're emceeing yeah. your brain is functioning in a far superior way to the way it's functioning when you're sitting in your garden shed writing is that yeah. what you would find that the sort of quickness of thought would make you funny as an emcee
0: uh, oh yeah I mean it, it keeps you sharp and you certainly need to have that 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 quickness of thought and that speed of reaction and all that stuff. and that's what I actually enjoyed because even if you've got 20 minutes of tip-top material and you might you might write a new 30 seconds every few days you're still pretty much doing the same set right yeah yep. i did enjoy the fact that going out to mc would mean it would be different every mm-hmm. night it absolutely mm-hmm. would i'd have i'd have the same shtick at the beginning welcome to the show da blah, blah 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 but then once you start talking to people it can go anywhere mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you'd always you'd always feel as if you were doing something different even, even if you weren't. You
1: know? Yeah it is and, and there is that adrenaline feeling isn't there I definitely noticed coming back to it since everything started to reopen that it's it was quite hard to get a sort of natural adrenaline rush for the actual kind of doing a normal set I was kind of a bit disconnected it felt really weird to start with whereas emceeing you've just got to turn up right you can't be emceeing and have your mind on the kind of oh I had a row with my wife and who's going to unload the dishwasher. You've got to be present.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. The other thing I noticed, I mean, for it, so there were three or four years when I was doing both. There were three or four years when I, I mean, less and less stand up, so I couldn't travel outside London. I was only working in London.
1: But you were and doing I, the big clubs, right? So you were in the Comedy Store and Junglers and all the big ones. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and that was fine. You know, you could, you know, you could do three weekends out of four at the store, or one of the Jongleurs venues, or whatever, and that was fine, which let me left me plenty of time to, to work on the book. So I was doing them both for a bit, but once I stopped the stand up. I really started noticing of the difference. I mean, in terms of how stand-up fed into my writing, that was really brilliant because, mm-hmm. you know, crime crime novels are structured like jokes. They're full of reveals and bits of timing and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know. So that, but the difference between comedians and writers is just an enormous
1: one. It is. That's if, what I was interested in, personality-wise, because uh, I can see... I mean, if I may quote from your... I think it was your wiki page. And by the way, uh, award for the longest ever Wikipedia Page, you've got you've got a, so much on your Wikipedia page. it's, okay. it's very impressive. It's like, I, I wish
0: I could tell you it was me that had done it, but it genuinely isn't. No, uh, it's a very, I, it's a very I, impressive. I know when people <laughs> mess with it, like with my when my kids change my middle names and stuff
1: like that. But. Yeah, there's a lot of um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I think your kids have put on that. No, it's it's a, but it was it helps me researching this. I will okay. say it's not the only bit of research I did, but you say I think it's on your um, wiki page, and you talk about um, comedy and writing novels as complementary, and you talk about a strong opening when you do stand up you walk out on the stage and you have a minute 60 seconds to hook them in or they'll start booing yeah. um and then you say as a writer again you have the duty to deliver a reader has got has not got time to say I'll give him 50 pages um, and I hope it'll get better and you also talk about the big ending the sort of pull back and reveal so yeah. did that kind of come naturally then or did you have to sort of articulate to yourself how the two might feed into each other
0: yeah it was a it was a gradual process of realization because in interviews early on it would be the first question I was asked you know, people would go, oh, why does a comedian want to write these dark books?" You know, you're telling jokes by night. Why are you writing these dark stories about serial killers during the day? And I'd have some pat answer about them being two sides of the same coin or some nonsense. And it wasn't for a while that I began to see exactly how stand-up had, had fed into it. You know, um, as you say, you know, you can't walk on stage at the store and go, "Give, give me ten minutes. I get funny after yeah, that." You know, you, yeah. you don't have, and you've got to engage a reader every bit as quickly as you engage a, an audience in a in a comedy club. And I started to realise how they were, you know, how they did one did feed into each other. But but the thing that struck me more forcibly than that was that, as I say, the difference in personality between stand-up comedy by nature is a competitive business.
1: It sure is, uh,
0: and and it's so weird, you know. So you have a compare and four acts, and it's not like the, the compare and those four acts gather together in the dressing room before the show and go, "Let's all have a great show, everyone." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let there's none of that. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you can be on stage waiting to go on and your best friend is on before you and you want them to die on their arms. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> <laughs> that's not good psychically long term. <laughs> you know, it really is kind of weird for your headspace. Whereas I can remember going to the first book awards ceremony I went to after I was published and somebody was receiving this brand new this award for a debut novel or something. And they got up and they walked the stage and I looked around and the joy on everybody's face. Genuine and then enjoy, not fail. And I can remember thinking if this was a comedy award, <laughs> you know, the bitching would have started before that guy even got to the stage. <laughs> there is so kind of there doesn't seem to be within you know, there's always a few people, but certainly and certainly within the crime genre specifically, there isn't that attitude that in order for me to do well, somebody else has to do bad.
1: Yeah.
0: Yep. Um, and, and it and it made me realize that, you know, a lot of the time in, in dressing rooms in 20-odd years of comedy, all I'd be listening to is people slagging somebody else off. Did and you it-
1: find that? Because it is, I've definitely noticed, I'm not sure whether it's made me more liable to sort of mood swings, you know, highs and lows, or whether I always had them and I found my place where I'm allowed to have them, you know, whether I hid them in the corporate world and now I, I let them out there. But did you find it sort of, because it is a toxic world. I mean, a lot of comedians suffer from mental ill health. It's a really tough okay. business. Did, yeah. did it have an impact on you when you were doing it day in, day out?
0: I, you'd probably have to ask the people around me. I, I mean, I don't. I mean, you're don't still married, that. so it can't I'm be married. that. Married, yeah, um,
1: <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think
0: so. Um, there'd certainly be times by the end of you know doing five shows in a weekend at the store. By the time you get to the late show Saturday night, you're like, I'm, I'm done with this.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, You know,
0: just sit. And of course, being a compere, as you know, you're you're the one. You're the last fucking chicken in the shop. Yeah, you're sat there at half past two in the morning well, there's an act on stage struggling because everybody's knackered and you're just like, oh, I've got to go on and wind this up in a minute and it's you just want to be at home. It yeah. was, in a way, I still miss, I mean, I still miss those 20 minutes on stage. I still miss the hit of that, you know, when a show goes well. But I don't miss schlepping up and down the motorway or sitting in those horrible dressing rooms. Um, you know, some of my best friends in the world are still, are still comics and we, and we still hang out, but I don't necessarily miss that world anymore.
1: I think a lot of people, um, obviously, sadly, some really brilliant comedians gave up during the pandemic just because it was, you know, anyone who was teetering on the brink of why am I doing this tipped into I'm not going to do it. Yeah, there's a few people who've given up for good um, or I won't say who they are in case they decide they haven't given up for good because <laughs> comedians... Go, no, I haven't. <laughs> you don't tend to say do you as a comic I've given up um you just sort of slip out of it and also probably always think I could slip back into it so I don't think anyone's getting given a carriage clock and and going off into the into the sort of night and into retirement but I think it has uh, but the people who haven't given up um which is obviously the majority I think a lot of us are like why were we driving to Nottingham for 80 quid like I I don't want to do that I want a life and that is not furthering my career I'm not in I might you know you might listen to a couple of good podcasts on the journey but it's kind of sold destroying and it also properly puts you out of whack with everyone around you because no one else is doing that unless they're a comic you know um and with the regularity you know bands don't get booked to play five nights a week um unless they're touring you know but they wouldn't do it week in week out for 52 weeks a year which is what comics do right we're perpetually on the road yeah
0: i mean i I remember being at the 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 big comedy store celebration it's a 40 year anniversary party and you know there were hundreds and hundreds of people and looking around, you could see, I mean, obviously, there were, there were a handful of people that have gone on to be massive comedy stars, but also in the room were, you know, novelists, TV presenters, musicians, people from all, and or teachers or, you know, whatever. A lot of people go, you know, do comedy and it launches them into something else. It's mm-hmm. a springboard uh, into something else. It's a very hard career to maintain long term. Certainly, there's, I think there's an age thing. I mean, I can remember long before I actually stopped thinking I'm too old for this.
1: Well, don't just say that, because I only started at 45, so don't, well, you know.
0: Uh, do you know what? It's fine if you stick to certain gigs, but I can remember doing student gigs, for example, mm-hmm. doing, you know, there's that big student circuit, and standing on there thinking, I'm just like their dirty uncle. Yeah. This is, this is awful. You but know, like you've gone for up- dirty
1: uncle, not parent. I always feel like their mum. I've done a couple <laughs> of freshers weeks. In fact, I remember when my son was doing his own freshers week. I didn't obviously go to his uni, but I was doing a few freshers weeks gigs around the country, and I remember thinking, literally, my son is is doing what you're all doing. And I am literally must look like one of your mums because I am the age group to be one of your mums. Although actually, I don't think it's, I felt like um, it kind of soothed them having their mum just talking to them. Um, I don't think they thought it was funny, but I think they were like, oh, that's nice. There's, there's someone again, like that's mother back, figure there. It goes
0: back to that competitive thing in that you're constantly aware of this rush of kind of young talent, coming in behind you. Doing different
1: uh, stuff as well that to us isn't necessarily natural. I watch some of the younger acts and I think, oh, I don't, I don't think that's very funny. And then I realise the audience is bloody love it. And I'm like, okay, no, it's absolutely. me. That's, it's me that's out of date. It's not them. Yeah. It's not them that's not funny.
0: Well, the same, the same is true to a degree of writing. I mean, I think, uh, I think after 20 odd years and 20 odd books, I'm kind of all right. I don't think I'm, you know, any, nobody's going to stop me writing anytime soon. But you're still aware that there are some amazing writers in their early 20s. Uh, coming And out, some newcomers
1: like Richard Osman, like our mutual friend Richard Osman, who uh, <laughs> coming up and <laughs> you know, know doing well. well what a young
0: whippersnapper he is! <laughs> um, but you, I mean, obviously you know. Yeah, you get books like that come along once in a bl- once in a blue moon. But you, 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 you get people who are just maybe writing stuff that, in the way you were talking about, you look at the the the, the actual material. Uh, the younger generation is producing, I look at some of the crime fiction that's being produced by people in their twenties and kind of go. Not for me necessarily as a reader, mm-hmm. but then I go, well, this is something really different, and and every genre needs a kick up the arse. Probably mm-hmm. in the same way that comedy needs a kick up the arse. Every ten years, somebody needs to come along that's going to shake things up, you know, and mo- and move things in a different
1: direction. <laughs> talking of moving things in a different direction so obviously i know you've written standalone thrillers but obviously your main you know your tom thorne series is a series and there must be some perils attached to being so embedded in a in a series as opposed to one-off so how how is that right being so immersed And, and also the character tom thorne is 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 not dissimilar to you in some ways right so where's the kind of overlap
0: well, I mean, the only way to... I mean, those of us that write learning, long, long-running series, and there are many of us, we, we all gather together in corners and sort of go, you know, God, it's awful, isn't it? We, mm-hmm. we, well, what we do talk about, the fact, is... I mean, I'm, I'm sitting propping up a bar at some festival somewhere with, I think, Ian Rankin and Bob McDermott, and there were three or four of us all sitting around, and we went, do you know what? If a bomb went off in this place tomorrow, and, you know, half a dozen writers of the most successful crime series out there were all killed, do you know what? The fans of the books would go oh, that's a bit of a shame. But as long as somebody carried on writing John Rebus novels or Tom Thorne novels or whatever, they'd be fine. Yeah, it's the characters they want. Yeah. It's the characters they want. And there are plenty of cases where that is happening, of course. The main problem with it, I mean, I don't get bored with writing about him because I take time off to do other stuff, uh, collaborations, do silly stuff with a band, doing standalone books, whatever it is. So you come, I come back to the series mm-hmm. fired up. But because you've got 17 books behind you, you have to honor the history of those books, mm-hmm. and that can kind of feel like, as a friend of mine put it, Jacob Marley dragging his chains around. You can't pretend that stuff hasn't happened, um, but you also have to write every book as, it's the, as if it's the first book in the series that reader has ever read, and they don't want to hear about all this stuff that happened instead of in previous books. So again, it's a really difficult balance to strike. You know, is you've got prequel,
1: every- Is that one of the appeals of the prequel? That because I guess if you are thinking of it as a real three-dimensional living, breathing person, which is how your characters come across, then you wouldn't suddenly forget that that little thing had happened to you or you'd have that crucial bit of pain that had led to this. So does the uh-huh. prequel give you a bit of a blank canvas where you're like, great, prequel, I don't have to remember. <laughs>
0: great. The prequel gave me a chance to do, to do it in reverse in a way, because um, obviously none, none of the stuff that I have to write about in every book has happened yet when I'm going mm-hmm. back to 1996. Mm-hmm. But I could put sort of reverse easter eggs into it so there were little moments that I knew readers of the series would go oh oh, oh. I know who he's going to turn out to be or I know what's going to happen with that bit of information and I got he Thorne's major relationship in, in across the series of books is with a, a pathologist called Phil Hendricks who's kind of his best friend mm-hmm. this was the book I got to write their meeting and I thought they're gonna hate each other I know mm-hmm. I'm gonna, gonna absolutely hate each other so I had loads of fun with that but also most importantly, I didn't have to worry about CCTV and mobile phones and mm. all that stuff that makes writing crime fiction really fucking hard. You know, yeah. because you can't you can't pretend that stuff doesn't exist and go, oh no, there's there was no battery in his phone. Oh, there was no film in the CCTV camera because you just look like an idiot.
1: Yeah,
0: so, yeah. It was great fun. Going so it's back. easier
1: to right. commit a murder back in '96 than it is now. That's the moral of the story.
0: Well, it, it certainly. You know, the majority of crimes these days are solved in five minutes with cell site triangulation and CCTV footage, and but they'd be very boring crime novels and very short. Yeah,
1: kind of good um, for society, not so good for your industry as a crime writer. the
0: society, <laughs> I got books to write.
1: these bloody police solving crimes. One of the um, writers who I absolutely love, John Irving. I don't know if you've re- have you read a prayer for Owen Meany?
0: I certainly have. I I, I got to meet John Irving a few oh, old, did a you? more than a few years ago? Now, oh, I'm a massive fan. Massive. Oh,
1: me too. <laughs> I'm, I'm very pleased to find that you're a fan. And 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 I I don't know which of his books you. I mean, I love pretty much everything he's written. But a prayer for Owen Meany was long before. I mean, I studied literature at uni, but I I think I probably read it before I'd even gone to uni. But it was one of the first books where I just thought, God, everything was so beautiful and impeccably choreographed so that that final mm. devastating scene, it was, it was a masterclass in everything leading to that, key point in the in the book and I and I, I sort of read it a second time very soon after the foot I've read it many times but I read it quite soon afterwards and everything seemed so different now I knew the ending and mm. how so I, I guess is there an element of that for you as well that you know you're working towards that heavily choreographed reveal with everything quite, that yeah. leads up to it quite
0: often it's knowing where I want to get to but having no idea how I'm going to get to it mm-hmm. so so it's been talked about by writers before as being like driving through fog at night. Mm-hmm. so I have a rough idea of where my destination is but I can only see as far as the end of my headlights so I'm going to take an awful lot of wrong turnings and all that sort of, so I'll get there eventually but I haven't got a clue how mm-hmm. and I don't want to follow a sat-nav because that would be boring mm-hmm. so I don't want to plan everything out you know I have no I don't plan the books out I have a kind of a beginning mm-hmm. and then when I've written about 50 pages I start to imagine what the ending will be but mm-hmm. uh, I've still got 350 pages to write and I've got no idea what's going to happen
1: and do you like hanging out with, I know anything that's, you know, things like Tales of the City or anything that's a sort of series that I've loved over the years. As a reader, you literally do feel like you know those people, and when you finish the book, you're like, God, I'm just going to miss hanging out with them tonight. You know, I want to hang yeah. out with them again. Do you have that as the, as the author with, with characters like Tom Thorne, who you know so well? Do, do you feel there's a sort of companionship while you're immersed in the actual writing? Kind
0: of, and, and every time, I mean, the book that's coming out uh, in July is a standalone. Even though Tom Thorne is in it for two minutes, he does have a little cameo in all in all Sandland. But this is essentially a year not writing about him. And for the first month, I'm kicking myself every day, going, "Why am I? Do- what an idiot! Why am I doing this? I could be just writing a nice scene with Tom and Phil, and they're having a curry, and they're watching the football." And uh, but I push through that, and I'm always really glad by the end that I did it mm-hmm. because there's always a good reason why I've done it. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it's just, I need a break. I've written three Tom Thor novels on the bounce and I need to do something else. Mm-hmm. Or this story really isn't for him. It's really not something he, you know, uh, I'd have to be crowbarring him into this. Um, so I'm always really glad by the end that I have taken a break and done the standalone things. And when I, when I go back to me, it is a little bit like putting on a, a you know, a, an old cardigan. I sort of, um, because I do feel I know him. Having said that, I have no plan for him, no Bible for him. No dossier of facts about him, which means I get things wrong. I get, I will get emails going, why are his eyes brown in book 12 and green in book 14?
1: You're like, have you not heard of... Did you not see David Bowie back in the day? Eyes yeah, changed no, colour. I, it's deliberate. I just
0: mess, no, I just <laughs> messed up. And and I'm, But I'm glad I took that decision not to. It was probably just laziness, actually, at the time. So I don't know the names of his, you know, distant relations and, and where he went to school and what he has for breakfast and all that stuff. I mean, I kind of do, but I don't do you know what i mean i don't he can still surprise me well
1: so it's the opposite of method writing i guess you're you're letting it kind of breathe its own life as opposed to trying to control and orchestrate it too much from the side. yeah
0: absolutely and i've just said something that makes me sound like one of the types of authors i absolutely hate when i go he can still surprise me what i mean of course is i can still surprise me because i'm the one doing the fucking typing i really i really can't stand those i mean i've shared stages with them all over the world over the years with The kind of writers that go, oh, I don't know what an idea is. I just channeled the character's voice and this sort of airy fairy mystical nonsense about what writing is. Why do
1: you hate that is that because it well first of all it undermines the art of writing <laughs> if people well, are going the it just lands in writing
0: certainly yeah and, and the yeah. job yeah. of writing which is to put your ass in the chair and write as yeah. opposed to sitting waiting for the muse to strike i mean it's just this mystical idea about writing that it is something that it is something magical and mystical and you know even even something like writer's block which is one of these things has talked about has been mythologized where when when to me, having known people who've gone through it, it's depression is what it is. That's what mm. writer's block is. And if you're depressed That's and you're a plumber, you will have plumber's block. Anybody can just not work for it. But it doesn't mean that the muse has gone away and deserted them. It means they're just their headspace is wrong. But you know that idea that writing isn't a job and a craft and something that you can get better at. Um, it pisses me off and I don't like those kind of writers.
1: There is something that I'll put a link in the show notes to, I don't know if you've seen, there's a John Cleese um, sort of lecture from, it's probably about 20, 30 years old now about the process of writing and creating and one of the big things in it is you've absolutely got to put the hours in. You don't suddenly come yep. up with 40 towers. But it's sometimes it's not in the hours you put in that the inspiration comes. So his view is you'll put the eight hours in and, and not get anything you're much impressed with. And then you walk the dog and you're like, shit, that's the thing. So, it, it, But they're connected, right? You've, you've got to put the hours in or you won't get that brilliant oh, of bit course. of spontaneous the, the, inspiration.
0: The book is in your head all the time. You know, especially with something like crime fiction where where there are problems to solve and where you've painted yourself into a corner and you're going, oh, my God, if they got the DNA evidence on a Wednesday, how the hell did they? And you just have to step away and you step away. And like you say, two hours later, walking the dog or pushing a trolley around the supermarket or in the shower, you go, I know, I know, you know, and but it's not it. That's not magical. That's just like I've been thinking about this and thinking about this. And even when I'm having my dinner, I'm thinking about it. It's working itself out in my head it is just a process of putting the hours in it really really is
1: yeah i think it is and i always i do look at the uh, the circuit now on the comedy side of things and i think actually the people that are doing better than me are the people who are writing more than me So and fair play. So if I think if I was writing as much as some of the people I admire and wasn't doing as well as them, I might be resentful but sometimes I think, yeah, there are people whose work ethic is phenomenal and they deserve absolutely everything they've got and you can tell you know, I'm sure you noticed it on the circuit when you were sort of embedded in it, the people who really put in the hard graft to finding what their voice actually is instead of going for the quick easy laughs are the people who become the absolute genius comedians, you know, people like Bill Bailey don't just appear as as Bill Bailey, you know he puts that he puts the the graft in. Is, right. um, in. In terms of your sort of personality, so it, it, Tom Thorne is a very flawed character. All your characters are flawed. Lots that you know you write about psychopaths, you write about you know horrible people and likable people and people who are a combination of the two. So, hmm. what do you think about flaws and failure and, and vulnerability in, in regard to yourself?
0: Um, I guess you know. I guess what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I mean, you know, everybody's had shit times and everybody has good times and it's just about learning from them isn't it rather than you know what I mean and I, I guess that sounds I,
1: easy though because in theory absolutely my intellect gets that and goes yeah yeah but my emotional bit of me goes yeah I'd love to live like that but I well, don't know it, how
0: I, I guess I am the first person to I, I guess what makes it easier is that I'm the first person to acknowledge what an enormous part luck plays in, in, in any, certainly in any creative endeavor. And I think this is true of comics or musicians or actors or writers. Um, I mean, I know, I know people who can write me under the bloody table. You know, writers who can craft a sentence better than anything I will ever come up with, who just haven't had the breaks, mm-hmm. right? Who, who haven't had a manuscript pass in front of the right editor at the right moment or the right agent at the right moment. I equally know people who, you know, couldn't write a shopping list, who oh, are phenomenally successful. Mm-hmm. So good luck and bad luck. Uh, play a massive part. But I'm also a big believer in that, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I seem to get. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So I
0: think, I think work hard and be lucky is, is pretty much a mantra to live by. And you know what? D- again, this sounds so facile and so obvious, but just don't be a dick. Just do not be a dick. Um, there, are, there are very few people who behave badly in the world I live in now, professionally, very few.
1: Unlike the comedy world where there's Unlike plenty the of world. that.
0: Um, and And the fact is that when they do, it's a huge thing because it's so rare. Do they get um, pushed
1: out of the Crime Writers Club? Do people, is there a tacit Trump. agreement that we don't Trump. want them at the Hay Festival next year? Well,
0: you, you joke as if there isn't a club, but there is, uh, I mean, there, <laughs> there is, there is a, 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 club, a club called the Detection Club, which I'm, I'm proud to be a member of. Oh,
1: there, there is you, an actual you, club, is there? Is it like, is it like the Magic, Magic Circle club. for magicians? It,
0: kind of. I mean, it's more what it is, is a very posh dining club. But this is something that was started by Agatha Christie and Dorothy L Sayers, you know, a hundred years ago, so. So it's not it's like the Garrick
1: Club, it was founded by women, that's good to yeah. hear.
0: It's 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 kind of a nice thing to be part of. And there's a big ceremony with robes and skulls and candles, I mean, it really is kind of properly weird. Now you're um, worrying
1: me, but we'll pretend so think, that that's okay. Yeah,
0: I think if you, but no, and, and there's a crime writers association, uh, you, oh, you've pretty much got to stab somebody to death to be drummed out of that. Um, but you know, if you if you are a dick and you 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 just will find you're not being invited to the festivals with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, because because why life is too short. Life just is too politely short. Politely
1: excluded and put yeah. on the sidelines. Yeah. And is there um, I know you do when you talked about being a stand-up and you've acted as well and you, you do lots on stage, you're very you do loads of telly, you're very natural as a, as a kind of person who's not sitting with himself and writing. Um, is there... So you seem as if you're an extrovert. You you can, you know, talk the hind leg off a donkey. You're very eloquent. Uh, where do you sit on the kind of introvert-extrovert scale? Is what we see... Is what we get what there really is? Uh,
0: no, probably not. Um, uh, yes, I, I would appear to be an, an extrovert who's somebody who, and somebody who's massively gregarious, but also I can't stand crowds. I can't... You know what I mean? I'm not... Is there a, is there an, an introverted extrovert or an extroverted introvert? I mean, there I, is,
1: yeah. I, de- I, if you look at the, um, I mean, I don't know if you believe in sort of scale. psychometric tests and stuff, that it's, all a, it's all a scale. But I definitely, I definitely think of myself as an introverted extrovert and no one who sees me on stage or knows me socially would think I, there was any bit of introversion. Mm. But I know that to do the bits I do, I don't know how you found it, but I find the backstage bit at a gig and all the lead up and the chat and then the bit afterwards exhausting. I can do the bit on stage, but mm. I really find it tiring to have to be with people for several hours being on my game I I do find it tiring and I need space afterwards I don't know how if if you need the space between it
0: that's definitely true but I think if if it's a scale of one to ten nine and nine and a half is
1: extrovert and and is is that why you so so. you so you're, as well as obviously doing the circuit, and I know you read your own audio books and that gives, I guess that gives the kind of acting muscle a bit of an outing and you get to the yeah. voices and, and yeah. act them. And they've, you know, lovely, it's really lovely to hear authors reading their own books. Well, as you know, often when authors read their own books, you're like, oh, shit. But yeah, in your case, watched. it's it's a perfect fit. But you do, um, and of course, music. I know you won Celebrity Mastermind uh talking to the subject of Elvis Costello, is that yeah, right? Indeed. Um And I'm an absolute, f- I think we're probably of a similar vintage and I'm a huge oh, Elvis Costello fan. Yeah, I, did a, I did
0: a Costello podcast the other morning where um, they'd already interviewed Elvis and then I come on at the end and talk about him as a live performer and the various live shows I've seen over the years and all that kind of stuff. And again, it's one of those things where you get the email and it, and it mentions Elvis and you just go, yes, yeah. I, I'm not going to even think about this. It's, uh, and, and, and probably the most, the most glorious thing that's happened to me in, in recent years was 1986, I went to see him at the Royal Court Theatre in Liverpool. And when he was doing the Spectacular Spinning Songbook. So yeah, he's this, that was a
1: great like, era for him. And I was him. lucky yeah. enough
0: to get, to get selected to go I on
1: tried to go to that. Spin the
0: wheel. Right, yeah. so I span the wheel in 1986. 30 years later, I get invited to interview him on stage when his autobiography comes out. At the Royal Court Theatre bit. Oh, wow. Exactly 30 years later. Isn't late. it lovely
1: when life has that symmetry? It doesn't often happen, does it? It
0: was a beautiful bit of symmetry, but I'm sitting three feet from him and we're chatting away and, and then he starts to play. And I didn't... Have, we hadn't talked about the event beforehand. We would sat in his dressing room talking about Bob Dylan for an hour or whatever. So then suddenly he's up and he just picks up a guitar and starts to play. And I'm like, shh. I'm three feet away from him wow. and he's playing shipbuilding and I'm just like if you well, could tell
1: me, that's one of my absolute year self you that's know? one of my absolute favourites I play the piano a bit and I used to love I had one of his songbooks when I was a teenager and shipbuilding was was and still is one of my absolute favourite things to play I love it is yeah, um, yeah. I saw you I know you're um in a band the fun loving crime writers yeah. which as well as obviously being a midlife crisis dad band you know every man <laughs> I date your age oh. uh, Mark and there's been a few people I've dated your age they're all in a bloody band, but they don't all end up playing Glastonbury. So well done to you. Oh, <laughs> so... fine. It's just so weird. We
0: started this as a bit of fun at a, at a book festival, a crime festival that happened to be in New Orleans. And the last night, we're all in the house of blues, and there's a sort of scratch band on stage, and a few of us shambled on and busked our way through three songs. And the next thing, we we're invited to be to perform the Edinburgh Festival. And I'm going, "Hey, there's only three of us, and we only know three songs." So we put a band together because uh, so many crime writers are also musicians. Um, and out of the band of six of us, there are three fantastic, properly fantastic musicians, mm-hmm. which I'm not one. I to But three brilliant musicians, you know, the drummer, the bass player and the lead guitarist. That helps. So we're, so we're a pretty tight outfit. And we just do cover versions. We do songs about murder. And we, so we, we messed around and did them at a few festivals and it, and it always went down well. And then I got called to say, do you want to play Glastonbury? And I was the one that got to email the rest of the band going, this is not a joke. Because it's the thing you joke about when you're in yeah. a band. Any yeah. band go, when oh, we're course. playing Glastonbury. Yeah. And it's also the stick people would use to beat you with. they go, when are you playing Glastonbury? Last fucking summer. Yeah, like that.
1: that's a good, because I, I was in a band in that part of the world. I grew up not far from Glastonbury. So okay. really for us never to get booked with Glastonbury was a bit tragic back then. We were also a cover <laughs> band. But what we weren't was rather good, because I've i seen footage of you doing watching The Detectives. And I was like, uh-huh. oh, here we go. This will be, you know, like a, a bad wedding band. And it was very, it was very good. Very, well, I was mean. our selling
0: point you see i always i always describe the band as we're way better than you think we're gonna be yeah
1: you definitely were
0: not selling point you know you can't put that on a press release but
1: I think it's a good caveat there. When you've got a bunch of, um, of musicians of, of a certain vintage, it's quite important to acknowledge the fact people might be like, is this a kind of hobby gone a bit narcissistic as opposed to something that's actually really good? So no, I loved, I, I loved it and I, I absolutely love the fact you're a big Elvis Costello fan. You don't get to talk about Elvis Costello enough in the, in the modern day.
0: I talk about until the cows come up. On. One of the worst things about that was cancelled for us during the pandemic was that at last year's cancelled Edinburgh Festival. We was, but the band were asked to curate an entire day uh, of sort of music fiction crossover. So musicians who, who, were, who were also novelists or very fond of certain novelists, novelists who did music, whatever, and there'd be a whole day. That's
1: and, a lovely and we, task, curating we each that.
0: Got to, we each got to invite somebody, and my pick was Elvis, obviously, and I'm, I'm not even, I, look, I'm not even sure he would have done it, but, you know, the book was not long out, not that long out. The idea was that he'd come, i talked talk to him about the book, and that maybe he'd come on with the band that night and do watching The Detectives with us. That was the dream, uh, and it's, it was snatched, snatched from us by the
1: pandemic. Never really. say never, just hasn't happened yet. Let's not no, assume like it no. can't ever happen. Um, before I ask you the three questions I ask everyone who comes on Namaste Motherfuckers, I just yes. have a question for you, which is, um, I mentioned earlier that I interviewed Richard Osman a few weeks ago. and in his acknowledgments. I know
0: what you're going to ask. I know, then. and I'm
1: just going to say, just for people who don't know what the question's going to be, so he says in mm-hmm. his acknowledgments that there are no rules to, that you said to him, there are no rules to writing a crime novel and then proceeded to give him two great rules. Um, and you're not going to say what they are, are you?
0: No, Richard and I have made a pact about You're going to spin He's, this
1: out until your grave. We've
0: both been asked about it endlessly ever since his book came Good out. I'm
1: an original questioner then. Well, no, <laughs> but
0: we just, we just decided we're not going to, you know, it was, it was a quiet private lunch and we are not going to reveal the contents of that conversation Look, because- nothing Nothing earth-shattering, I that's promise you. That's what I was going it. to say,
1: not- is it? Is it because you're spinning out the suspense because you're crime writers, or is it because it's really shit? And yeah, when we, we, we all hear th- it, we'll be like, oh, yeah, obviously. Of
0: course, it's a bit of both. It's not like crime writers are going to hear, hear what these rules are and go, oh, my God, that's the most astonishing insight. Yeah, people will go, yeah, obviously. I've decided um,
1: that one of them is about the misdirection technique at the ending, so I'm not asking you to comment, but I've decided that a big thing you will have said is about how we how you can't guess the twist. And um, obviously, I know that's very obvious, and you may go, yes, it's not. Uh, I, I was, that what obvious. I
0: want to say is back then, which was, you know, two and a half years ago now, three years ago, when he, when I said to him, when he was just talking about, I want to write a crime novel, and I just said, well, t- tell me the, the rough idea. And he spent 20 minutes telling me over the idea as we sat eating, you know, Turkish food. And I just went, That is going to be brilliant. I said to to him from the word go, that is such a great idea, and you so have to write this. Yeah, Um, and I genuinely, you know,
1: also playing to a home crowd, right? I mean, he's definitely got his, you know, he he's the ground was soft. It's I'm not saying it's not really really well written, but he's very well picked his brand. Well, it
0: was also the perfect book for the time. It was, you know, it was the it was a it's a perfect pandemic book. It's not, you know, when people you know the golden age of crime fiction there's no there's no coincidence that it was between the wars when people had gone okay we've had enough of, oh,
1: yeah, of course, pain and yeah. grief and
0: death and loss we'd like something that's a little more healing and a little more uplifting maybe so it was the right book at the right time so um, the virus
1: didn't start with a bat it started with osman
0: <laughs> yeah it started with osman he made it happen Let's but he, you know he get put the he did exactly what you're we talking about he sat down and he wrote the freaking book and yeah. Uh, he did it the proper way. And and all the, you know, there's there's been a lot of bullshit. I've seen people go, well, yeah, but he's a celebrity, I, you know, obviously. But he's
1: not uh, a celebrity I, in Germany where it's also best selling Right. A right yeah. And I'm not yeah.
0: sure, I'm not sure Steven Spielberg's a massive pointless fan. Yeah. But 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 saw enough in that book to go, I'm having that. I mean yeah. it is it, just a great book. And I've I've got the second one already, but I haven't had a chance to, to read it yet. But I know it's I know it's going to be great.
1: You can tell it's different from comedy because if we were sitting here talking about a fellow comedian who'd suddenly come in at a year exactly. in and was totally like whipping our asses, as we He'd be so resentful but as it is uh, but we don't need to give him any more airtime i think he's doing all right without I me mean, plugging him on this podcast namaste, motherfuckers. what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment
0: okay well there might be two, ah, very that's, tricky. Fine, might be two. that's fine that's fine we got the first time one for is, two uh, probably aged 11 when i was cast as the artful dodger in oliver twist at school and you know up to then school had been you know i wasn't brilliantly academic I wasn't brilliant at sport so it was one of those schools where unless you did one of those you were a bit anonymous and this was then, in
1: Birmingham right where you grew in up Bur- in yeah. Birmingham
0: yeah. and then we, we did at Oliver at school and I was the artful dodger and the minute I finished doing consider yourself and the audience burst into applause I do remember thinking I like this mm-hmm oh, I like this, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So that was the sort of perform. that was when I essentially became a performer. Mm-hmm. In, t- in terms of what I do now, the moment when my phone rang when I was in Brent Cross Shopping Centre, standing outside Marks & Spencer's in Brent Cross Shopping Centre, and it was my agent going, publisher X have made an offer. And it's at that moment, you know you are, you are a published author. You know, because it's one thing to write a book and send it to some agents and do all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, unless a publisher goes, we will pay X money to publish this book, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. But that moment when she rang and said they've made an offer, um, I knew it was going to happen. I mean, in the next few days, publisher B, C, D and E made an offer and it all Mm -hmm. went a bit crazy and was wonderful. But the moment I got that first call... And uh, my wife was in the shop and she came out and she went, it's going to get published. So, yeah, that would be a, but actually, do you know, the Oliver moment is probably more important, mm-hmm. I think, probably.
1: <laughs> I do. I will wager that uh, we. I could record another thousand of these podcasts before anyone else's Namaste motherfucking moment would take place in Brent Cross. So, I feel that's very, you've given me something unique there.
0: Okay, good. I think the the only... is, When I got that call, what I probably did was click my heels in the air like I did when I sang <laughs> consider yourself aged 11. I probably actually did that
1: it's amazing when you do actually have those moments though and as you say there's luck involved in those but they almost you almost can't believe them when they happen right when my son recently got my got a job as a zookeeper after wanting to be a zookeeper his whole life and being obsessed with zoos since he was a tiny little autistic toddler and when it actually happened I just I probably did click my heels and then cried for about three days I don't know if you did the crying bit as well as the clicking your heels
0: there might have been some sort of you know A a, a small amount of weeping. A
1: small amount of weeping, a a little bit of something in your eye. Um, So what is your favourite joke?
0: Whilst thinking about this, I've always been a massive fan of Jewish jokes. I'm not Jewish, but for reasons way too complicated to explain, I went to an Orthodox Jewish school. It's a very long, complicated story. Was that just because your
1: parents were like, oh, we didn't read the form properly? No, 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 my parents were
0: not Jewish. It was the school I was at, for reasons I still don't understand, was closed down. I don't quite know. Just like overnight, not
1: connected to you personally.
0: Not connected to me. I didn't do anything. It wasn't after it, your Oliver I, Twist
1: performance. They were like, "Shit, we no, can't." No, so we
0: this just going. got farmed out to the nearest schools nearest to where we live. Mine being King David School in in Mosley in Birmingham, which is a fantastic school, but it was an Orthodox Jewish school. I think there were three of us in the whole school that weren't Jewish. Wow.
1: Um,
0: but I still had to. I went through that that school as if I were. You know, I had to wear a. And go to assembly and do all that stuff. And all my obviously all my close friends and their families are Jewish. Um, so I've always had a soft spot for Jewish jokes, proper Jewish jokes, as told by Jewish comedians, not yep. anti-Semitic jokes, Jewish jokes. Yep. And my favorite is uh the old Jewish guy who goes into the Jewish grocer's uh late one night to buy something, and he walks up the first aisle and there's just huge sacks of salt. That's all there are. Up, up the first aisle and he goes down the second aisle. More sacks of salt, they're piled high. And the third third aisle, there's just Salt, salt, sacks of it all the way up to the ceiling. And he goes up to the guy behind the counter and he goes, I guess you must sell a lot of salt. And the guy goes, no, not really. And he goes, well, why, why all the salt? And the shopkeeper goes, well, you see, me, I can't sell salt. But the guy who sells me salt, oh, can he sell salt? I just think that's a fantastic joke. It's a great joke, isn't
1: it? (laughs) And is that one of those jokes that no one would know where the origin was? It's just one of those jokes that is out there. Yeah, No
0: idea who wrote that, whether whether a version of that joke has been told for hundreds of years, you know, probably.
1: That's a great, great joke. Thank you. Um, And also, uh, you didn't pick one of your own, which some people do. Really? People (laughs) do? Yeah, obviously we that's never like air their episodes because the we're like, that's like going on desert
0: island discs and picking one of your own songs. Do you know I
1: did listen to Graham Norton's desert island discs and it's from twenty years ago. You can tell I'm busy at the moment, and um, and he said, oh, you know, in one of my tracks, it was um, islands in the. What's it called? Dolly Parton's track island Islands in the Stream. Islands in the Stream. I nearly said Islands in the Storm. You can tell I'm having a bad week, and um, and it was him and Dolly Parton doing the duet when he'd done some sort of you know thing on telly where the where the okay. denouement was. And I thought, God. And then that was the one he picked to take to the island. And I was like, shit, that is. And he pretended it was so none of us would have to hear it again. But I was like, "Ooh, narcissistic much. Anyway, now I've psyched off Graham Norton and promoted Richard Osman. My work here is nearly done. Uh Uh, So I'm going to give you the last question, which is if there was one bit of life advice you could offer to anybody listening, what would it be?
0: It would be don't stop showing off. Uh, It was the thing. It was the thing I used to get told at school more than anything in the class, you know, in the classroom, which is probably the wrong place to be doing it, but I constantly, Bellingham, stop showing off. The thing that just used to make me die a little inside every time I was, you know, it's a crushing thing to say. Mm -hmm. And I can remember vowing to myself that I would never say it to one of my kids. And
1: you never have said it to them. No, I never,
0: never, I never have. I never would. Um, because it's an awful thing to say. Um, and, You know, when I think, well, I've made a a reasonable living out of showing off in one form or another, and I know plenty of other people who have. Um, You know, if if you are a show-off, you are a show-off. It's who you are. And I know it can be irritating to people, but don't stop showing off.
1: Excellent. Wise words indeed. Namaste, motherfuckers! That was the brilliant Mark Billingham. Now every episode as you know I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to try and this week it's simple. Well it's simple to say, bit less simple for me to do and it's going to be all about making time for writing, just getting the fuck on with writing. It's weird how urgently emails need checking, toilets need cleaning and dogs need walking when it comes to the moment when I am meant to be starting writing. I don't even have a dog. So for the next five days in a row I'm going to spend the first Two hours after I wake up writing, come rain, come shine, no distractions, airplane mode, ahoy. Someone told me a while ago that if you actually tell anyone something that you're setting yourself as a goal, it's 60% more likely to happen than if you keep it to yourself. I think that's honestly a real thing. So I reckon saying this. On a podcast counts for at least 120%. Basically, what I'm saying is, I think my book is now writing itself. Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and was produced by Mike Hansen and Karu Shadami for Pod People Productions, music by Jake App. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show, not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, but because it helps other people find the show. So that's it for the show for this week. Thanks again so much to Mark for joining me. You can find links to his books and all the things we talked about in the show notes. We'll be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be talking to one- one of the absolute best comedians to break through in recent times, and one of my complete favourites. I'm a mega fan of Maisie Adam. There was definitely learning curves, um, but I think I had quite an unconventional introduction to stand-up comedy. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.
0: Ball.